Hello and welcome to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast, C-Suite Conversation with Scott Miller. That's me. Every Thursday, I have the privilege of sitting in this studio where I get to interview people that have made it to the top, whether they are public companies, private organizations, sometimes international, global conglomerates. Each week, I have fascinating conversations with people that, quote, made it to the C-suite. You may know that I also host what is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast, On Leadership with Scott Miller, that airs twice weekly on Tuesdays and Fridays, about 15 feet that way, on another studio where we interview uh, business titans, thought leaders, celebrities, people that have done remarkable things. And what's fascinating, after six years on that podcast and close to 350 interviews, it wasn't always the Hollywood celebrity or the Pulitzer Prize winning author who had the most downloads or the most likes or the most reviews. It was people like today's guests that are like you and I, but have had remarkable career journeys. They've done things that are both Herculean and relatable, replicable in our own career. So based on that, we spun off this new podcast that airs every Thursday. And today we have with us a remarkable guest. His name is Damon Jones. He is the chief communications officer for a small company you may have heard of, Procter & Gamble. Damon, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Hey, Scott. Great to be with you today. Hey, great to have you. Damon, I want to start this interview with something I've not done in the past 100 interviews of this podcast. I'm actually going to painstakingly, and to your horror, walk through what has been your career trajectory at Procter & Gamble, because I think it is enormously instructive for today's conversation. Like me, you have dedicated the vast majority, if not your entire career, to one organization. I spent 27 years with the Franklin Covey Company. You similarly, your entire organizational performance and history with Procter & Gamble. So patience with me, everyone listening, watching, and especially our guest, as I walk through directionally what your career has looked like. 1997, you graduate from college and you join Procter & Gamble as an associate manager for communications in the fabric and home care division. Then a year later, you move to the manager of communications, fabric and home care, and new business development. Then about two years later, you become the senior manager for external, external relations, customer and multicultural marketing in North America. Two years later, you become the senior manager for corporate external relations. About a year later, you become the senior manager for external relations, global business services and information technology. About two years later, you become the associate director for external relations for Western Europe. About two years later, you become the associate director, external relations leader for the UK and Ireland. What do you know? Two years later, you become the director for communications global grooming. I see a trend. About three years later, you become the director of communications for Asia Pacific. Three years later, the director of global company communications. Three years later, the vice president for global communications and advocacy. And what do you know? Two years later, 2020, the chief communications officer for Procter & Gamble. I think it is such a remarkable trajectory. This was not by accident. I'm guessing this was very intentional and deliberate that you chose to dedicate what is nearly a 30-year career with one global company. I'd love to unpack some of that. To the extent I got that directionally accurate, I'd ask you not to correct me unless it was major, uh, major mistake on that. I'd like you to share with our listeners and viewers how much of that was intentional, how much of it was highly deliberate, how much was serendipitous. Did you start your career thinking you might start and potentially even finish 
with one company. What are some of the lessons learned that people are, that are watching and listening today can adapt into their own career journeys? What I say is where I'm at, Scott, is probably not what I envisioned uh, as a as a 21 year old joining the company. I was hoping to do this for uh, two or three years and then and then make the next jump. Um, but I love a good challenge. I think growing up, I was always the kid who wanted to take something apart to really figure out how it worked, and then so I could put it back together in a better way. And it's really that same approach that I've taken to. Uh, lessons of building businesses and building teams at P&G, really understanding what was the driver between making something work and then frankly being open and honest and transparent about how it could work better. Um, what that means that I could do something different or I needed the team to do something different. And luckily being a part of a major multinational firm has led me to opportunities that have given me plenty of, of, of reps at that, if you will, being able to go in and see what works and then figure out, okay, great, if we can apply the situation to one business in one category in one country, why can't we do the same elsewhere? And so constantly building on those learnings uh, and the magic of really great relationships uh, led to 27 years at P&G. David, our audience for this podcast is generally people who are either aspiring to or are in the C-suite globally. And every one of them, or at least not all of them, most of them have nephews, nieces, grandchildren, children, or people who are on the rise. And so they're always looking at what are the trends in hiring, what are the skills that companies are looking for. We're going to talk about that. But I think you've done something that's quite interesting, and you've sort of broken the mold, kind of like I did, where now the average tenure for someone is between 18 and 36 months, whether it is opportunistic uh, uh, moving around, whether it is talent stacking, what advice would you give to people that are listening who might be coaching themselves or people in their lives about the resurgence of organizations looking for people to stay long-term and people even of the younger generation looking for longer careers? It hasn't been in vogue, but it seems a bit like a pendulum is swinging post-pandemic for now longer-term careers. Do you agree or perhaps even disagree with my assessment of that? Well, I, I think building a career obviously isn't linear. Um, and there's no one size fits all. But what I think about is, as you describe each of those steps, there was learning, there was growth, and there was opportunity in each one of those. I've been lucky enough to be able to find that in a single organization. Yeah. Not everyone does, right? But I take the same approach to being very clear on what can I contribute in the role? What is the distinct problem or challenge um, that we're trying to solve? And making sure I'm in, a, in an organization that is receptive both to my individual contribution, but just to a spirit of ideas. Um, those have been things that have driven me from one assignment to another. I've got friends who've moved from one company to another. The beauty of doing this all within the same company is that you find a common framework, be that the company's values and principles, be it's the language, be it the location. So it doesn't feel like I'm starting over every time I take a new assignment or I take a new challenge. Um, you know, whether you're a consumer in Boston or you're a consumer in Bangkok, you want a product that delivers great quality and great value um, that aligns with your values and something that you're proud to tell the people around you that you um, that you use or that you work for. Those are the consistent elements of our brand. So, yes, I see a trend in more longevity, but I think it really comes at its best when it's really an alignment of values in individual purpose because people feel like, hey, I'm not moving because I have to. I'm moving because I want to. I tell people all the time when it's time for you to, to evaluate that next opportunity, make sure you're running towards something and that you're just not running away from something. 
beautifully said. Damon, when you're in a position to interview a candidate for any number of jobs that might report up to you, and you have two candidates, regardless of any other external knowledge of their race or their gender or what school they went to, when you look at a, a, a resume, and let's just say they've both been in the workforce for 20 years, maybe they're in their you know, mid-40s or such, and you have one person that's perhaps maybe had two or three six-year stints, and you have one person that's had nine two-year stints. What conclusions do you draw from that, perhaps positive and negative? Do you have a proclivity for someone who perhaps has been in eight or 10 different companies and has uh, learned a variety of different cultures, or do you tend to have a preference for someone that's shown more staying power and stability? You know, I've got people on my team who, who've had both of those routes, if you will. What I look for more than the number is their ability to articulate what they took from assignment A and applied to assignment B. How did they show individual growth? Was it something that they sought out, an opportunity, uh, a new challenge in the company, and then they raised their hand to say, hey, I've got something I can add value to here? Or was it, hey, there's a shiny new toy or the grass is greener on the other side? Uh, and so for me, it's not about the number of assignments, but it's about the deliberate nature and how you can say, hey, here's what I've learned about the organization, the marketplace, or myself that I believe sets me up well for the next opportunity. You know, as I think about the assignments that I've been um, blessed and fortunate to have at PNG, I got some advice uh, as a fairly junior manager. And they talked to me um, and they said, well, tell me what taking this next job sets you up for. Essentially, they were saying, what's next after next? Beautiful. And having that bit of a midterm or a longer term view really sharpened how I went into any new challenge or any new assignment. What did I want to learn? What were the relationships I needed to develop? Um, how did I connect what I was doing in with the mission, vision, purpose of that broader organization? So someone who's able to articulate that and, and to show a, a very clear path of growth and success and learning along the way. To me, it doesn't matter if you've done that in two assignments or 10 assignments, if you've got that magic down and you've shown how you can build from one assignment to the next, then that's someone I'm really interested in talking with. Damon, that is pure gold. You and I could not be more philosophically aligned. This idea of what's next after what's next. I don't think enough people, regardless of their career and life, think about what's after what's next. Usually we're thinking about what's immediately next, but we aren't putting together strategically, deliberately, a long-term plan to think about where is this taking me, right? What are the skills that I'm building in this role that will take me to the next role? I really appreciate you reinforcing that. That is enormously valuable career advice. Let's talk about a day in the life of the chief communications officer for P&G. <laughs> so what do you own? What ultimately rolls up to you? And what does a day look like in your role? You know, at the end of the day, um, I'm responsibility. Uh, my, my main responsibility is ensuring that people trust P&G uh, and they trust our brands. At the end of the day, people want to work for a company that they trust. They want to invest in a company that they trust. They want to buy the brand or the product of a company that they trust. So my job is to help people understand what those drivers of trust are and then to really help align our actions and our messages. Um, very often, uh, oftentimes people will come in and say, well, what should we say about a particular situation that we're faced with, right? And I, I start by reframing that conversation and say, what are we gonna do, right? Because when you've got clear actions, then I can have clear communication. Um, but a, a day in the life, I, I wish I could predict out what it is. Uh, it's a long day, it's a global role. So I generally start my day early with my colleagues in Asia, then moving on to Europe and then 
uh, to my colleagues here in the Americas. And it's really about helping them make connections between what it is that they want to achieve. It could be an individual brand or category growth objective or a marketplace growth objective and, and really help them what I call read the room. What's happening in the world around us? Um, you've got you know, conflicts, you've got uh, societal issues and trends, you've got uh, labor trends, you've got all of these things. And so my job is to be the most educated person on what global trends are and then to make sure that people can see the actions of their brand or their category and their market in that context through the lens of multiple stakeholders. Um, our job is to serve our consumers, our customers, society, employees, and shareholders, but we've got to do that all at once. And, and that requires being able to have a conversation, not just with one person, one-on-one, -on -one, but particularly in a world where you've got as much digital and social media, you've got to be able to have that conversation perhaps to a target audience while everyone else is listening in. And right, for anyone who's got the parents of teenagers, they're probably frightened by that, that example. But that's my job. It's really about helping people who want to do good things, uh, do them in the midst of what is often a very challenging uh, external environment. David, you and I share a couple of things in common, not just longevity in one organization, but also uh, education and communication. You have an undergraduate degree in communication arts, same topic I studied as well. And I believe now in my 50s, as myself having been a former 10-year officer in a global public company, Franklin Covey, of course, being uh, you know, a little smaller than that of P&G, that I think the number one skill that every associate needs is the ability to effectively communicate to be able to influence and be persuasive. I'd like you to check your humility for a moment. Seriously, the more humble you can be, the more valuable it will be. What have you done to deliberately build your communication skills, whether it is your articulation, your vocabulary, your knowledge of what's happening in the world, your ability to gather the facts and differentiate between opinions and feelings and communicate with your internal stakeholders and your external customers, what are some of the very practical things that you have done to master communication that other people could also replicate in their own roles? It's a great, great question, Scott. I'd probably say there's three things. Number one, I would say you have to, um, you know, vociferously seek out information, but do that from multiple lenses, right? If I think about what's in my inbox, I'm looking at everything from the Daily Mail in the UK to the Straits Times in Singapore, to Al Jazeera in the Middle East, you've got to ensure you have a diverse set of information coming into that, right? And you've got to be able to understand fundamentally how people approach the world. Um, number two, you've got to be comfortable um, that your answer likely isn't the right answer, right? Um, and that you've got to be okay. I mean, when you write for everyone, and I had an assignment as a speechwriter, it's kind of like, okay, it's not my voice, it's someone else's voice. So I've got to get them comfortable. Um, with that. So you've got to be okay not being right, but being okay to really penetrate why does someone approach the world that they do. When I went to Singapore years ago, I got a great book. It was called um, uh, Kiss, Bow, or Shake Hands. Uh, I may have gotten that slightly wrong, but really, and it talked about different customs for different uh, nations across Asia. The most interesting thing in the book, though, is it gave historical context as to why these behaviors uh, were really important, right? So it wasn't just that this is how you bow or this is how you, you do a customary greeting. It really gave me insight into why people approach issues and, and things the way that they did. And that just, that curiosity helps me develop uh, relationships and really understand people. 
I think the third thing for me is really being open to feedback and not just being open to feedback, but seeking it out uh, and demonstrating to people who have the courage uh, and, and who invest in you to give you great feedback, to let them know how you process that feedback, what you do with it, and then to check yourself over time uh, to ensure that you're getting better. When I think about my role as a communications officer uh, and, and deciding what course of action the company does, my CEO doesn't have to do anything that I tell him to do, right? My value comes from the fact that he wants me in the room to provide him the perspective that he needs that maybe he doesn't always want to hear. Um, but that's that. So, so when you understand fundamentally what you bring to the situation, then you're able to really hone in on how you can be inherently useful and constructive to the company and to the people around you. So that's how I approach um, my job. And, and I really try to drill that into all 600 of my team members. Guys, we don't own the P&L of this business, but our job is to make sure that the people that do have the information, the perspective, uh, and, and, and have the what they need to do to have good judgment to make those decisions. Um, that to me is how I approach um, really effective uh, communications council work. Damon, you mentioned the CEO. I want to drive deeper on that. Uh, let's just assume for a moment that the answer to this question, of course, is circumstance-based. But I, if you were a public relations consultant, perhaps someday you'll be when you retire from Procter & Gamble, uh, what role should the CEO play in companies in terms of face of the company on social media, writing articles for LinkedIn, blogging on Inc.com, any advice you would generally give and as we move into 2024 about C-suite officers and how they should be ambassadors for their companies, maybe not as the face, some companies hire celebrity endorsements and such, but what advice do you give to the officers of P&G and how they should lead out in terms of communicating with customers and shaping the brand and being ambassadors for P&G? I would say find a lane where you can be clear, compelling, and authentic. And I'm gonna start with the last one. And that is the point around authenticity. You have some people who are natural extroverts. They love telling stories. They love being out engaging with people. These are the people who would be taking pictures with their colleagues as they travel the world, even if someone didn't ask them because that's fundamentally their personality. You have other people who get their energy and provide value in very in different ways, right? What's gotta be, consistent among all of them is that they need to be their best self. When I see people who have these social media personas that are frankly not who they are, I cringe, right? Because it's more obvious than you think. Um, and, and I use a number of, of, of my team. We have, we've got some executives at PNG who love being out engaging with other people in large groups. You have other people that are at their best when they're most, um, when they're in a room of 15 people, right? And so I've got a plate of those strengths and find ways for those people to connect with those stories and, and a great connection amongst 15 people who can amplify that message may do more, may have more benefit than someone who stands in a room of, uh, of 1,500 people, right? So I've got a plate of those strengths. Um, the, the other point there that is consistent for everyone is just clarity on the mission. I mean, I, I think leaders have an amazing role to help people understand above all else, what's important and what's important right now. Uh, and so when you can do that via, you know, if that's LinkedIn, if that's your own company blog, if that's Instagram or whatever it is, throughout all of these things, just being able to be clear, being able to be uh, effective and to be able to be to, to be able to do that in a brief 
yet compelling manner. Um, some people do it in writing. Some people are great on video, right? So I will tell the P my PR colleagues, find what works, not just for you, but find what works for that person that helps them be their best self and, and then just knock it out of the park. When you said pick your lane, be authentic, it makes me think of some candidates running for the U.S. presidency right now on the Republican side, right? You could tell that they're kind of out of their element and skin. We won't name who those people are. We know who they are. Uh, all of us have side hustles. You have once had a side hustle as the director of press relations for a national uh, political convention. What are some of the communication principles that you've taken from your time at P&G and also have applied or at least maybe even advised candidates or perhaps worked with political parties. What are some of those principles of communication in both those worlds that you would remind our listeners and viewers today to ground themselves in? Yeah, I think politics is a very fertile learning ground for communicators. Number one, it allows you to put your hands on the keyboard, if you will. Um, I remember uh, joining the, 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 the DNC team, this is a number of years ago, and I'd go and, and ask the question, well, who does that? And they would say, well, you do that. I said, well, who does that? Well, you do that, right? So, you know, being in a, in, in a corporation like P&G, you've got lots of resources, but in politics, um, you know, there's a lot that comes down to shoe leather, right? And so the ability for everyone in an organization, whether you are the junior volunteer or whether you are the principal um, herself or himself, you've got to know your message. You've got to have your why. You've got to be able to articulate that on a moment's notice um, to, you know, the person you know, in line at the grocery store, if you will. So the first lesson I took away was that everyone in your organization really needs to understand not just the big picture why, but they need to understand why getting three more votes in this district in Dubuque makes a difference, right? And so that clarity of mission and being able to drill that down into everyone who touches your product, your service, or your organization, I think is hugely important. Number two um, is really about recognizing that you operate in a competitive context. In politics, we knew that something was gonna happen every day. That means we knew that the, the other candidate or the other party was gonna have something to say. Many times in the corporate world, we get so locked in to a plan that this is what we're gonna do in week one and this is what we're gonna do on week three of the campaign without leaving the power of agility to read the room, understand what's happening, and then to adjust. And so for me, one of the lessons that I took away from politics was that your, your uh, 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 capability to be agile, agility, if you will, mattered just as much as your ability to predict what the right thing was happening, right? That means you had a core set of key messages, and then you identified if situations A through B happened on the left, or one, two, and three happened on the right, then that was your operating tolerance for when you might do something different. Um, but again, sometimes we think that, you know, because we're in a big corporation or a big organization, or because we're at the top, we get to predict the way that things happen in the world, and it's just not, not that simple. The, the third thing that I would say is really about how you manage crises, right? Uh, and the ability to say, you know what, sometimes I don't know, uh, or I don't have the answer, but here's my values, here are my principles, and here's how I'm committed to act. Um, we live in a world where there's so much gotcha, right? I mean, if it's a consumer delivering a rating or review, they, they love to tell you what happened to them or, or, or find a moment when you've not been authentic. Uh, and so I think this element of just being humble uh, and being likable, I mean, we used to poll against, is candidate X the person I'd like to have dinner with? Uh, and that speaks to likability. It speaks to the degree um, of building relationships with people. I think those are three things 
um, that we paid attention to in politics that have enormous implications uh, for people in the corporate world, even not just the most senior people, but people growing up. I mean, if you've not learned to master bringing people to your way of thinking or managing a mid-sized organization, it doesn't get any easier as you move up in the organization. I think the answer is generally no. I would not like to have dinner with most of the candidates on both sides. Not to be negative, but to be funny. Okay, I want to talk about you personally, professionally. Uh, if you were to gather your direct reports in a room and they were to pay you a compliment about your leadership competencies, what would they say is your number one strength as a leader? And I'm going to ask you the flip side of that in a moment. You know, they probably say um, as uh, that I'm not afraid to admit um, when I when I got something wrong, right? When I didn't exactly hit it out of the park. And again, um, you know, th there are times when we're asked to to make uh, judgment calls having little to no information. Uh, and when I try to share a judgment call, I say to people, "Hey, this is a judgment call. There's no right or wrong answer. But here's what leads me to to to, to this course of action. Here's why I believe that." Um, I want to get to that fairly quickly. Um, so I, I think they'd say, um, you know, even in the times when it's not all worked out, um, they were at least clear on why we made some of the decisions. Uh, and hey, I will tell you, there is no bigger critic of Damon Jones than Damon Jones. Um, and so I'm very open and transparent of the things that we didn't get right, because I think it sets the tone for a culture that other people can kind of come in and say, hey, I didn't get this exactly right. And then what, now that we've admitted that we're not perfect, we can get on to the insight, the data, um, or whatever it is that we miss to enable us to get it better the next time. Okay, since you're your best inner critic, let's flip that question. What would they say is your biggest area of growth? The thing you do that annoys them the most? <laughs> Other than sometimes talking things through ad nauseum, um, uh, because I really want to make sure that we get all of the information in. Um, I, I think I am still learning to perfect the art of making the right decision and a quick decision um, and, and understanding the differences of those. I mean, there are times when what you say uh, on an issue or on a topic, you can correct and go back. But I tell you, in increasingly in a world um, where everything is on social media, um, where you've got, you know, a world of a peanut gallery out there, um, you know, saying the wrong thing or saying the right thing in the wrong way um, sometimes can have really painful repercussions. Um, so I'm probably not as fast as I need to be um, on all of those decisions um, so that we can uh, be as agile as we want to be. You know, it's an intriguing insight. When I was the chief marketing officer for Franklin Covey for a, almost a decade, our then CEO, our now chairman Bob Whitman, was extraordinarily reticent to want to have a strong social presence. He was an extremely calibrated, deliberate person. Our reputation was our most valuable asset, and he, quite frankly, didn't see the upside that was offsetting of the downside of you know posting something that was not well thought out or vetted. And I got a lot of heat from a lot of our international partners because Franklin Covey did not have a strong social game. We were quite frankly very late to the game. The upside of that was there were no slip ups. There were no employees posting photographs you know, of the wrong things. And we had a very, very strict policy. I'm guessing in any organization, you were balancing, of course, accuracy and speed and recognizing that sometimes having you can over-communicate, I guess is my point, right? Is you can slip up. Yeah, it, it's, it's absolutely the case. And, and, and I think if we think about where we are um, right now, I mean, a few years ago, everyone wanted to know what does every brand or every company think on every societal issue? 
uh, and there was immense corporate pressure to do so. Yes. Um, what I would tell you today um, is people want to know and they want to understand an organization's values, but that's got to be driven through the lens of what's right for your business, right? So we start all of our communications with what does, what's the relationship our brand has with the consumer, right? And what do people want most? They want great performance and they want great value. So yes, I may care about what you think about um, the environment or what do you think about a social cause? But until you tell me that you clean my clothes well, that you make my skin look good, that you make my teeth white, and I can get that benefit at a great value, only then do all of those other things matter. So it really requires uh, you know, a, a wonderful balancing act to make sure that you can demonstrate your values, but you do them in a way that fundamentally relates to what it is that you do. I and mean, when we think about environmental sustainability at P&G, um, we want to deliver irresistibly superior products that are sustainable, but we don't want to necessarily deliver the most sustainable products, not because sustainability is important, but because when you're making a toothpaste, does Crest give you the smile that you want? That's the most important thing. So you've got to do the first things first, execute them in a way that still speaks to people's minds as well as their hearts. But that is is is, is one of the, the, the situations that we find ourselves in, and that's different than it was three years ago, it's probably gonna be different than it is three years from now. But that's the ability um, that I think people have to, to have to have to really read the room of what lanes can your brands and your companies play in and to make sure that you're having the right conversation with the right person, but do that at the right time. Damon, I'm confident you have everybody uh, very engaged right now. I'm gonna put you in the hot seat. This is the last question I wanna ask you. Uh, product, service, industry, brand agnostic. What advice would you give the C-suite around the world on what topics do they need to be thinking about that are coming our way? Perhaps they are societal topics that they should or should not opine on. Perhaps there's some geopolitical issues going on or there's some technology or a new social medium that they need to master. Again, all things being equal in terms of venue, product, service, such, what are, th what are the things that you're looking at on the horizon that you are educating yourself on that every other vice president of public relations or every chief communications officer or every, for matter, COO, CFO, CIO, CTO, CHRO, CEO should be thinking about. Give us a little bit of a glimpse into Damon Jones' crystal ball. Yeah, I mean, I will tell you the transformative impact of technology. A lot of people are focusing in on AI right now um, that has tremendous uh, potential, uh, not just in our industry, but many others. Um, how is that shaping how your employees think about their ability to contribute to the organization? What are the skills that are needed? Um, you know, how can, you know, even someone who's a, a communications expert master AI to become a better communicator? Um, I, I've been reading up a lot and, and I just think, that, you know, AI and technology are going to have transformative impacts and the organizations and the leaders who can embrace that and not run from it and help their organizations embrace how to do work better, smarter, and understand how people think about it in relation to them, their jobs, their families, their lives is hugely significant. Yes, there's a lot of talk on what corporations and things, I think we'll navigate those, those well. There have always been things that have been political or social that have come through and, and I think we'll get our arms around them. But technology, I think is a true, true game changer. Uh, and everyone, no matter what your discipline is, no matter what your industry is, needs to understand the potential for disruption that is there and then harness how you can constructively disrupt it 
to create competitive advantage for, for, for what you believe in. Damon, I mentioned to you off air, my wife and I have three sons, nine, 12, and 13. My oldest son, Thatcher, is in eighth grade, and last night he was studying for his ethics bowl, kind of like a math bowl, but an ethics bowl. And his team has to defend uh, some concepts around uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. These are, you know, mm -hmm. committees that work after wars and genocides, things like that. And he was lamenting that his team wasn't doing their share. And he told me that one of his, one of his colleagues, one of his classmates, had um, entered into chat GPT, give me 800 words on Truth and Reconciliation Commissions and make sure you put it in a 14-year-old's voice. And I looked at my son, he said, don't worry, dad, that's cheating, I never will do that. And it was really validating to me. I'm an author, I've written seven books. I don't allow any authors in my agency to chat GPT their way to the finish line. There is a difference between being efficient and knowing how to leverage technology to work for you. And when there is just um, disingenuousness and cutting corners, as the person who I'm guessing ultimately signs off on press releases and communication, what rules or guidelines have you put down for how your team uses these, the, these tools to be more efficient, but can sometimes be quite bland and lack voice and lane and expertise? Um, we're still working through it. I wish I could sit here and say I've had all the answers, but I think that's where having principles um, and really spending time with the people that work for you to understand what your expectations of them are is really important. Uh, yes, I mean, I think chat, hey, chat GPT, and we've got our own proprietary version of it, um, can be great for summarizing meetings, for gathering data and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, people are accountable for the, res for the results um, that they bring. Uh, and I think we, we need to hold people accountable to that. Uh, but we've got to help them do it. We've got to help educate them on smart, responsible use of AI. And hey, I think, um, you know, the, the world around us is getting really smart. I mean, one of the things that I saw Recently, someone put some words into AI and said, hey, give me the likelihood that this was you know, created by AI, and they were surprised at the result. So um, there may be some things that help you get uh, be a little bit more efficient, but I don't think it's the great panacea, um, but I, I think it's just a journey. But it, what's going to make the difference is do you have people in your organization that understand your principles, that understand your values, uh, and that can work in that, that kind of context? So that's, that's the way I'm thinking about it. Damon, 8, 10, 12 years from now, my three sons will need to have what skills to get hired at P&G? The skills that they will need. Um, critical thinking, right? You know, to, to our conversation on AI, critical thinking and your ability to understand not just what is the answer, but why that is the answer, why is that the answer right now, and how that answer needs to be different in a different context is going to be hugely important to be a strong, clear, and a concise communicator. It's always baffled me, kids uh, coming out of college were, were told, you know, hey, spend five pages expounding upon this topic. I can tell you when you get to PNG, we want that topic and we want it in one page, focusing in on the most compelling, relevant information at that time. The third skill, your ability to work with people who are different who have different ideas, different ways of seeing the world that may not be in your city or your town or your country, uh, who've got a different cultural context. Your ability to get the right people in the room and to work through different solutions, recognizing that your idea isn't the best, those are the things that I think separate out uh, the next generation of future leaders. 
This interview will be on our television screen in my living room this weekend with all three of my boys watching it. Damon Jones, Chief Communications Officer for Procter & Gamble, we appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Scott, great to be with you. And tell Thatcher and the boys I said hey. I will do that. And we'll see you next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite. <laughs>